Hey, you know what? Hey, I'm going to say something that this might be the most incriminating thing I ever say. There's a genre of games called hidden role games. Names you might have heard of would be Skyfall, Secret Hitler, Werewolf, or the grandfather of all hidden role games is Mafia. Dude, I knew your game was over, but I didn't know you were trying to take me out with you. I love it. Essentially, you have good guys and bad guys. Good guys don't know who anyone is, and so they're constantly trying to build up information and weed out the bad guys and distinguish friends from enemies. The bad guys typically have more information, and they're just trying to distract, accuse, and generally create chaos. These games are about psychology and social cues, numbers and calculation, and definitely manipulation. For the record, Aaron, no one trusts anyone in this game. Yeah, everybody starts at zero percent. And it just so happens on a brisk January night, I got to play this game with Jeff Parker until 3 a.m. Now, the whole group is intensely into it. But I don't think there's anyone more at home than Jeff Parker. Hey, no, no, that, that's, they're clearly trying to get, this is ridiculous. David, it's you, it's you, you have to vote it down. I asked Jeff to take us back to the first time he can remember playing games or gambling in a way that really affected him. We were on a way to, I think, New Mexico. And I, I mean, I won like 50 or 60 bucks on the back of a youth group bus, you know, and I was like, whoa, that's like real money. And it grabbed my heart. For the most part, it was more just for hanging out, but there was always a money piece that was very attractive to me. I'm a competitive guy. Uh, I love odds and kind of factoring in the, the calculated risk of everything. And so there's a lot in gambling that kind of fed my heart. I remember the rush of like my sister's boyfriend took, a, took me to a horse track once and just remember going like, this is exciting. There's something in this, right? Just the, the thrill of the risk and the rush of it all. Before it got too serious in my high school days, there just wasn't a great outlet for it. I wasn't the guy that wanted to show up and sit down in the casino. I just was, I didn't want to go public with that. And so it kind of died. In the early kind of 2000s, Texas Hold'em got very popular uh, you could watch it on TV all the time, and my heart started to go back towards it. Online poker was legal at the time, and so uh, for the first couple of years of our marriage, I played online. My wife knew, community group knew a little bit. Again, nobody knew the depth of it, but people knew I was doing that a little bit. But by the time I hit 30, wrecked by um, past sexual sin catching up to me, I kind of was like, you know what? Uh, I know exactly where to go to numb that pain. I'm Aaron Rose, and this is Kingdom Come, a Sound of a Rose podcast. Uh, my wife and I were selling our house so that we could go move near Robin Haley and Allen. And so we had a double mortgage uh, for about three or four months. And I just felt this urge of I'm running back towards gambling. I'm actually having a little bit of success financially. There was a part of me that was like, man, keep winning and you might be able to pay off this mortgage pretty quickly. And you can definitely you know, kind of make both ends meet with the double mortgage. And so I started playing uh, online poker at this point. The amounts I'm playing just keep getting bigger and bigger. The length of time I'm playing keeps getting longer and longer. The amount I'm willing to risk and hide and manipulate just keeps growing and growing. And no one knows anything. Uh, what's happening in our checking account, right? I'm having to like manipulate my wife into not looking or to what's that? And I'm like, oh, that's that's something over here. And so the lies just keep growing and growing. And at some point, 
I'm running out of money in the personal account that I began to go, well, what would it look like to pull $2,000 out of the company checking account, move that over to my personal checking account and, and to keep gambling? Uh, and so sometime about six months after my 30th birthday after the Vegas, that's uh, it's probably the first time I cut a check from the company uh, signed by me, written to me, deposited into my personal account so that I could keep gambling. You know, just to let you inside my head, off and on, uh, I, I could justify it almost. They go, well, you know, I mean, I'm an important piece of the company. I'm going to try to pay it back. I'm going to, it was a prepayment of a bonus that was going to come, right? Just all sorts of justifying. And so there were days that justification could make me go, I don't have anything to confess. It started at $300 in Vegas. It's now up to 2000 It became probably by the end of 2008, it was probably in the $5,000 or $8,000 realm. You're losing control, right? I could feel myself losing control. And so there'd be moments of, you got to confess. So 2008... Was the was the year that his, the first altercation happened, and I, I wouldn't say that I knew. I did not know. I had no idea. I do think through the years there would be times when our our relationship felt strained, or or, or there were times where I, I couldn't put words to maybe a, a distance with he and I. I just figured, hey, this is part of relationships. This is true of other relationships in my life. You know, sometimes I feel connected to people. Sometimes I don't. We just have to work through those things. But other than that, it never crossed my mind. Now, in this story, like every story, there's a temptation to focus on the actions rather than the heart. When looking at the gambling, don't just focus on the amount or how, because that can lead to discussions that aren't helpful. Focus on the reality of evil and how it's not a destination where we just end, but it's moving us forward, away from good things like relationships and people that love us, and towards isolation and the next darker thing. Here's Jeff and then his wife, Stacy. Early on, I was gambling in 08, 09, online poker. That was two in the morning. You know, so you're losing tons of sleep. Later on, you know, it could become the stock market. I was treating it as a day trading, kind of ride the waves of it. I bought and resold tickets for sports teams. I lost a ton of time. I lost a ton of energy, you know, because when you're tracking a, a baseball team in, say, Washington, D.C., all of a sudden I care about the weather in Washington, D.C., you know, and so I'm spending going, is it raining there? Is it raining in L.A.? Is it raining in Texas? Is it, and so there was also just a uh, slow deterioration in how much my brain could keep up. There were slip-ups, you know, just as I'm managing the story, managing the lies that all this would entail. There'd be little slip-ups, which then a little slip-up would mean, oh, now I got to double down, triple down on the lie, which is just exhausting and intimacy struggled, both physical and just emotional, right? Obviously, there's a I've now put a ceiling on how authentic and vulnerable uh, we're going to be in our marriage. Life is busy, kids are in sports and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And But there was a point where I remember, like, having to almost, like, brainstorm topics that would get him to, like, really engage in conversation with me. Like, so he just was more checked out. I was miserable at this church. The life that you read about in God's word, it's not easy, but it's attractive. It's like, man, if I could live like that, and yet knowing 
until I confess I can't live like that, not to mention I got to be around it. You know, frankly, it, going to community group was hard. I just had to fake it. Uh, and that's how deep my lies went, ultimately, is I had to fake being alive. I had to fake what God was doing transformatively in my life, right? I had to f- almost fake what he was teaching me and about how alive I was, and that was miserable, you know, one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and, and I would say in a healthy church, and, and I was miserable. I didn't need any more Bible in me to know what I needed to do. Anytime I kind of got near a Bible, it was just a in-my-face reminder, I got to confess. And so I tried to avoid it, frankly, because healthy feelings of sorrow I knew were going to lead me to confession. And I was like, that has, that's a dangerous place. You know, we're writing videos about the gospel and uh, we're wanting to tell stories of the gospel. I began, you know, one of the neat things about working with Rob is uh, Rob unlocked this little creative aspect that I didn't know existed in me. And, and so I, st- I started to help write scripts. And there were times I was literally writing scripts that I hoped I would just listen to and believe. All the little joyful moments, even my kids being born, when as a company we kept growing and um, different leadership roles I was growing at within the company or even at church, there'd be these little moments of joy and the enemy knew exactly how to steal it, right? Or my flesh would just go, but man, if people just knew. And so even these moments of holding a baby and just kind of going, man, I'm not the dad I'm supposed to be, and I'll never be the dad I'm supposed to be. Man, just the joy that was sucked out of me in that moment uh, was real palpable and defeating. Something from a credit card company came with my name on it, and he like kind of swooped it up pretty quickly and like tore it in half, put it in the recycling, like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And I was just like, it caught me off guard. Something about it struck me to be like, that felt weird, and that had my name on it. Like, why shouldn't I look at it rather than just like, you know, two current residents or something like that. Um, so the next day when he was at work and the kids were napping, I actually went and got it out of the recycle bin. I tried to look at my credit report and figure out when the card had been opened, but I didn't have all the information I needed to access my credit report. So I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to ask him one more time. And his response was so nonchalant and seemed to make sense. It was, oh, there was an old credit card. We had closed it, but there was still some like a reward or something that was available. And his response completely put me at ease. You know, I did compartmentalize um, aspects of this so that, man, I loved Rob, right? I mean, I stole money from him. And in a way, I didn't love him, right? In a way, I I was his greatest enemy. We'd have these incredible moments and and, and we'd have a good vacation together. We'd hang out together. We'd have a great lunch together and just laugh a lot. And there'd be a lot of joy that surrounded that. And then that little moment of joy didn't last because there was no foundation that it was planted in. And so uh, there was a ceiling in our relationship as well. From an outside looking in, we still had a great relationship, but there were things where, man, I couldn't be fully open and authentic with them. So anytime I would feel like I needed to sharpen Rob, or if we needed to have a harder conversation about something, or if we were just if needing to dig in a little bit deeper with the company, I just I, I would have this little sense of who am I to push hard in this instance when I'm holding on to all this other stuff. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I harmed our relationship in a lot of different ways. And so ultimately, just like in my marriage, there was a, I put a ceiling that was constantly kind of pushing down. Uh, and it's one of, you know, one of the great consequences I didn't even probably fully understand I was doing at the time is how, how much I was limiting how good my marriage could be, how great my relationship with Rob could be. In the, in the midst of 
of those things happening for those years, you know, he and, he and I were buddies, we're friends, we're strategizing, we're, we're, we're working together at the same company. And he was of two minds and I was not. What would it have looked like if, if um, that wasn't going on? Um, knowing that he, he had motivations to make decisions based on what was being taken from the company, based on hiding things that he was doing, what could have been uh, if those things weren't true? I, I don't know. I do know that we still had a, we were still friends and we still enjoyed working with each other through those years, for sure. You need to understand the past few minutes is not a representation of just a few months, but years. When choices are neatly laid out in front of us, it's easy to see how one bad decision leads to another, but that's not how life works. Self-deceit happens in between paying your mortgage, your weekend plans, and planning out your neighborhood's Easter egg hunt. So, five years later, Jeff is still stuck. Uh, you know, in 2013, I remember we were, uh, we were just brainstorming, dreaming as a company. We had just sold, uh, not too long ago, we had sold one of our divisions. And so we were just in a brainstorm of, hey, where are we going from here? And I just remember going, I could bring the company down. The sin at this point is now probably 60000 70000 maybe more. I never thought it got, would get there. So really the thought starts to hit my mind, man, you thought you were going to pay this back when this was 5000 8000 you think you're going to pay it back now that it's 70000 80000 Meanwhile, my soul's deteriorating. Literally, I'm, I feel like, I don't even know how to put words to it, but I feel like I'm watching my life happen and I'm not living it. Like at this point, I'm like, uh, and I'm not trying to distance myself from my sin. It's my sin, but I just was like, this is not the life I wanted. Um, this is not who God called me to be. And it was almost like I was just watching somebody else. The 25-year-old who wanted to be just a godly husband, a godly father, I was like, I'm not any of those things. And so I just got to where I couldn't even enjoy being in my own house, being in my own marriage, being in with my kids. And so uh, that's where I just was like, this is unsustainable. And in 2013, I came really close to confessing and I was scared out of my mind. And I even remember God kind of providing a way. There's an old buddy, Jim Wimberly, faithful Watermark member for a long time, just faithful ear, kind of just older, wise man. And he walked by me. Jim didn't, wouldn't have known me that well at the time, but I was like, I could feel the Spirit of God going, just ask him. He'll sit down. He'll listen. And in that moment, I just kind of let him walk by. And I just remembered, okay, commit to paying the company back. Keep your mouth shut and brace for judgment. I will say this, uh, I, the faithful thing would have been to confess on October 28th of 2013, um, just as it would have been any other day before that, um, right? The faithful thing is to confess in the moment. But God did begin to brew something in me over the next 15 months. Man, if I die right now, the, uh, you know, all my friends are going to realize I was living a double life. You know, my wife's going to start to wonder, man, who was I, you know, who was I married to? You know, and I could almost hear their voices going, why wouldn't you, why didn't you just tell us kind of a thing? And in the meantime, I also uh, wrote my obituary about going, man, this is who I want to be at the end of my days. This is who I, I want to be known as, who I was and who this list was. I was like, I'll never be that guy, right? And so over time, 
there just was this holy discontentment of like, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. And yet I know I'm this guy. And so the bridge, the gap between that just felt insurmountable. There's just something in all of our natures, right? I think God's hardwired us. We want this life to mean something. It was probably one of the last avenues that the Spirit of God could come at me. You know, it was just going, hey, remember how you set out to, you wanted your life to count. That's why you were attracted to Igniter in the first place. That just wouldn't leave my brain uh, is, man, I want my life to count. I both didn't significantly hide it in the sense of uh, it wasn't a crazy paper trail, and yet it was also masked that even when we were audited by the IRS in 2011, they couldn't find it. The money stolen showed up in the books, but uh, buried in other things. So why after five years of stealing and lying and isolating yourself from people that you love, do you all of a sudden feel a burning to confess? I asked Jeff, and there's no real logical explanation other than the Spirit of God was after his freedom. Uh, 2014, by that time, we had so many things up and running. We had done the magazine. We had we had acquired a company called Graceway Media in 2012. Uh, Igniter Media was still going strong. One of the biggest projects that Jeff and I ever worked on was when our 10-year lease was finally up from the place we were leasing space, we decided we wanted to get some our dream space, basically. And we didn't know if we were going to lease or buy. And we ended up buying a 20,000-square-foot building. And in 2014, we spent at least six to eight months, just Jeff and I, working on that new building. And we, we spent a lot of time on it, just going, what do we want it to be? What all should it be? I mean, all the way down to he and I had uh, offices next to each other, but between our offices, we had a almost a secret conference room that we both had doors that went into that we could, you know, do meetings in. I mean, he and I, this was our space, um, and we were so excited about it. Um, so we moved into the building right, I mean, right at the beginning of the year, January 2nd, 3rd, right around there, everybody finally moved in. We even had a ribbon cutting where uh, we hosted uh, the mayor of Richardson and, and uh, a big group of people came. And so we're cutting this thing. So this is the beginning of January, 2015, kind of a new start. As we're going into 2015, a couple things are true. One, we were in big need of getting more strategic with our company because, again, we were almost sidelined by working on the building. I was then doubly sidelined because I took a sabbatical time. The idea of going to this Tony Robbins Business Mastery Conference was like, that's going to start 2015 off on the right foot. We're going to get back into this thing and just start working hard on the core of our business, which is serving churches with media resources. So about a week later, Jeff and I go uh, to this Tony Robbins event, and it was hardcore. It was, it was both amazing, weird, uh, off-putting, but also so helpful. It was, it was all the above. I, I loved it. Um, I think Jeff loved it. But what was funny is there was a bit of a strain in our relationship, one that I, did, I could not put my finger on. Even, even while we were there, there were things that I was feeling from him, like uh, basically a distance, like like he's pushing me away. I asked about a couple things like, hey, why did you do this? You know, and, and he always had good answers. And 
near the end of the last night, there was an accountant from Texas that he had up on stage by the name of um, Keith Cunningham uh, and kind of a maybe a 65-year-old uh, accountant who's talking about the importance of keeping good accounting records. And, and he was actually talking about accounting in a way that it was like real compelling. Even Rob was like, this is really good. Why have you never taught me this? And so he's teaching all of that. And then all of a sudden he stops and starts telling his personal story. Uh, and he just goes, man, when I was 40, uh, I wasn't the man God intended me to be. I was uh, an alcoholic. Uh, my wife hated me. My kids hated me. And uh, I couldn't even look in the mirror. <laughs> which was already kind of locked me in, you know. Uh, I had trouble looking in mirrors uh, for the longest time. And he goes, I thought that was hell. And I'm not saying if this is even fully biblical, Aaron, but we can, we can figure that out later. But he just goes, I hated who I was. And then the worst thought hit me. Worse than hating who I was, I had this nightmare that one day I would meet the guy God intended me to be. And uh, he goes, that was the, that would have been the worst moment, right? Of seeing who God intended me to be and still knowing who I was, like that pain. And uh, I don't, I'm not even doing the story justice in that sense, but uh, I just remember, and he goes, man, from that, that day on out, I set out to be the person Christ intended me to be. And then just like that, he returned to talking about debits and credits, you know? And I'm sitting around looking around like, whoa. What just happened? He has mentioned a couple of the, th the things said from stage at the Tony Robbins event that I remember, and I remember going, yeah, that was convicting to me too. I didn't have any idea that he was connecting to things that were causing him to feel what, what he was feeling. The double-sided man was being tortured at this event. And in that moment, you know, I'm, you know I kind of open up that little page about who I wanted to be. It just was like, that is, I mean, that's, I hated who I was, but I began to hate even more who I was not. And um, the rest of that night, I, mean, I have no idea what happened. I just was, Lord was working on my heart, you know, and, uh, and I was scared, right? I mean, I remember going back to my room that night, kind of doing a pros and cons thing, you know, about, you know, if you confess, you might go to jail. And I just remember that was in the con column. And I remember in the pro column is you'll be free. You know, and I'm like, man, you might have to pay the company back. You'll be free over here, right? On the left, on the on the, the pain column, it's like you might have to go to regeneration, which is our recovery ministry. And over here on the positive, you'll be free. You might have to tell your story one day. And over here, it's you'll be free. And it just was like back and forth of all the consequences that might come into my life and just you'll be free and you'll be free to be the man that God intended you to be. And finally, I just, I got to where I, uh, the Spirit of God just calmly just says, man, you want to be this. You've written about who you want to be for the last 15 months. A God's man puts his pen down and confesses because that's what God's man would do in this instance. And so that just is ultimately where I got. Uh, I'm wrestling with all of this. I'm doing a lot of writing and I'm sitting on an airplane. We're now heading back home and I'm so close to um, confessing. And um, again, I'm writing all these pros and cons and who I want to be list. And I'm trying to 
ignore it. I, I don't even know what to do. I flip open my iPad to uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. And no idea. Uh, it had probably been on my iPad for years. Uh, never read it. And uh, just click it, read the first chapter, probably just almost to try to take my mind off of the decision that was in front of me. And uh, if you only read one chapter of that book, read the first chapter. It's incredible. But it talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. And it just talks about cheap grace hopes that uh, grace doesn't demand anything, that there's no cross to be picked up, that sin's paid for, and that you can live with it the rest of your life uh, and um, kind of do whatever you want. And then costly grace knows that uh, grace demands a response with your life. We just were not connected. And I couldn't figure out. I had no idea why not. I, I didn't know. So um, a little bit into the plane ride, I just kind of, we were, there was an aisle between us, but we were sitting next to each other. And I just kind of finally was like, hey, man, um, are you okay? You know, are are we good? That's basically what I was asking. I mean, I am like jittery. You know, my legs are shaking. My hands are shaking. There's, I'm kind of turning away from him because there's uh, tears in my eyes. And so he asked me, he's like, are you okay? And, uh, and I just kind of said, yeah, yes, yes. I'm everything's good. Um, I'm just processing things. And, and he and I remember him saying, I want to tell you about it. Um, and, and I and I will. I, I had no clue what he was talking about. I just I was like, oh, okay, great, man. Finally, it just was like, you got to confess. And I remember it was like, now do it now. And I'm like, well, how do I do it? I, and you know, Rob's sitting next to me on the airplane, and I'm scared, right? Because I'm like, how do you tell your best friend? what you've done to his company and to him. And, um, and so I, I didn't trust that I would confess 100%. I fired up airplane Wi-Fi for 30 seconds and I sent a text to my community group guys. I just said, I'm ready to lay down the life I'm leaving. Um, and uh, can you meet me at the church when we land? And um, you know, once I sent that text, I knew, okay, there's no going back now. And I'm convinced uh, in my flesh, if I, if that plane lands, uh, I probably don't send that text upon landing, right? Like, I just felt that you've got to do it now. And so, um, yeah, that was the crack. Next time on Kingdom Come. I knew that it was going to be life-changing. I knew that it was there was going to be a before and an after I think that's when I kind of went numb. I didn't feel a lot of emotion at that time. I just sobbed. This is going to wreck him. This is going to kill him.